Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Welcome to Channel 9 of the STRY Radio Network, where stories live. Hello, my friends, and welcome to the Ninth Story Podcast. I am Jeanette Andromeda. And I am Immortal Alexander. This is Season 6, Episode 8. And today we have on author Darren Shan. And in case you're not familiar with him, his books in the Saga of Darren Shan series were on sale in 39 countries in 31 languages and have sold in excess of 25 million copies worldwide. And that's just one of his series. He's actually written a whole bunch of other books since then. Uh, we're talking about expectations versus reality when it comes to your first novel. Hello, Darren. Welcome to the Ninth Story Podcast. Hi. Hi, Jeanette. Welcome Hi, to the Ninth Story Podcast. <laughs> How you doing? I'm good, thanks. How are you? Doing great. Well, thank you so much for, for joining us today. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> thanks for inviting me on. Not a problem. Uh, Jeanette, would you like to get us started? Sure. The concept of this episode, Darren, is... We want to talk to you about when a writer first completes their first book. We all have these grand expectations of what's going to happen immediately afterwards, whether it gets published or not. Fame, fortune, book tours, suddenly we're not typing in our closets, things like that. And uh, we wanted to talk to you about your experience. So what were some of your expectations of what you had when you first finished your first book, which was Mute Pursuit? Yeah, I, I was very, very young, so I was realistic enough to know that it was a, a very big learning step for me, but it probably wouldn't be anything more. I was only 17 when I finished uh, that first draft. Mm -hmm. um, I'm, I'm probably a bit unusual in that I began writing novels probably earlier than I should have done. I made the leap up from short stories probably a bit too quickly, mm -hmm. but I really liked the challenge of the longer format. So whereas most writers will continue to cut their teeth on short novels, which is the logical way to do it. Um, from sort of 17 onwards, I pretty much focused exclusively on novels rather than short stories. And um, it meant I wrote quite a few novels which weren't very good. <laughs> but, you know, I was, I was able to write quite quickly. So I would prefer to write a novel that wasn't very good than a few short stories that weren't very good. I just felt instinctively drawn to the novels. And I think instinct is something every writer has to trust in. When I started out in my teens, you know, I, I love comics. I love theatre. Um, I was thinking maybe I'd write scripts for movies. Maybe I'd write for comics. Maybe I'd do short stories. Yeah, I wasn't. I didn't want to be a writer, but I wasn't 100% sure which branch of literature I would be most drawn to. And um, it, it ended up being novels, and I realised that quite quickly. So, yeah, I was 17 when I finished New Pursuit. Um, I didn't try and do anything with it because I knew it wasn't suitable to do anything with. Um, the following year, I wrote another novel. Uh, then I wrote a few more. It wasn't really until I was in, in my late teens, early 20s, I began to send a few of the later books out to publishers. Now, I knew that wasn't the right thing to do. I knew I'd read the Writers and Artists Yearbook, which is a publication we have in the UK and Ireland. 
I think writer's market is the um, American equivalent. Mm-hmm. And yeah, that recommended send your work to an agent. But I sort of didn't feel the books were strong enough for me to make that leap just yet. Uh, I didn't want to take it too seriously. I wanted to get an idea of what the market might think of them. So I sent a few of them out to a few publishers you know, in, in very, very, very wild hope, but no real expectation. And I got expected rejection letters. But um, I, I thought it was good. It was good to get your work out there. And then when I, I wrote a book called um, Procession of the Dead, which was its title that was published many years later. And that was the first book that I felt very positive about. It was, it was the first book that I felt, yeah, I've made a step up here. This possibly has a chance. So I went back and I rewrote it. That was the first time I'd written six or seven novels, I think, by that stage, if not more. But that was the first time I sat down and rewrote a novel and went through it and did a second draft. And that's when I followed the advice in the Writer's Last Yearbook. And I put together a sample chapter, a covering letter, sent it off to five different agents to see what they would think. Um, Four rejected it, didn't want to see any more. One asked to see the rest of the book. Nice. And he ended up becoming my agent, taking me on. And the adventure really started from there. So from the completion of your first actually completed book to the first book that you ever had published, what was that duration and what was that process like as far as, you know, trying and trying again? Like, how did that affect your ego, your your imagination, your, your inspiration? Did you feel a little disheartened or was it something that, you know, you eventually got okay with because you understood that this is just how things work? Yeah, it's, it's always horrible when you get even the slightest bit of negative criticism. Yeah, that's every right. I think every right feels that. Mm-hmm. Uh, when you write something, you know, you want everyone to say, oh, wow, this is the best story, the best book that's ever been written. You know it's not going to be, but I think you still naturally want that to be the case. Um, so when someone says, no, this is wrong, that's wrong, you know, you have to change this, you need to rewrite, it's always disheartening. It's always disappointing. Um, but, you know, being a writer, you've just got to be prepared to take the blows. Every time you work on a, a novel or a short story, especially when you're starting out. It's like getting in the ring with Muhammad Ali and Mike Tyson. You are going to get pummeled. Even if you know, my agent really liked my work, he really believed in me, but still, every time I'd sent him a book, he was saying, you have to change this, you have to change that, this isn't working. And you know, a quarter of a century later, he still said the same things to me. <laughs> you, you, you never get it fully right. It's one of the things you learn throughout your experiences as a writer. It's not about getting it perfect, because no writer ever gets it perfect. It's about getting it to a point where you've done all the hard work that you can do and then sending it out in the world. So um, as I said, I was 17 when I finished A New Pursuit. Uh, I was, I think, 21 when I wrote the first draft of Procession of the Dead. And it then took five years from that point to when it was actually published. Wow. Uh, when I sent to my agent, I also sent him other work. So he looked at uh, several of the novels I produced at that stage. And I was still working on first drafts. So I produced a few more over them two or three year period before we actually managed to sell anything but um procession of dead was the one we felt the strongest about so that was the one he did send a couple other books out to publishers uh, we had some interested in, in one of them but um procession was the one that we felt had the strongest chance of getting published so he focused on that i focused on doing rewrites and yeah so i was i think it was it was uh, february 1999 so i would have been 26 when it was actually published uh, in the uk it was a uh, it was an exciting time and terrifying. <laughs> I think the most enjoyable and the most horrible years of a writer's life are those early years when you're seeking that first big break. Mm-hmm. It's because anything is possible. 
Yeah, you can dream as big as you want to be. You, know, you could be the next Stephen King, the next J.K. Rowling, the next Stephanie Meyer. You never know what the public's going to react to, how your book is going to sell. Um, it's terrifying because as a writer, you usually have a very good imagination and you can imagine all the terrible things that are going to happen. But, you know, <laughs> it's going to flop, but you know, it's not even going to make back, back its advance. And the reality is you know, very few books ever make a lot of money for their, for their authors. Mm-hmm. You write because you love doing it. I, I wrote because I felt compelled to write. Um, when I was 21, between the age of 21 and 23, when I was rewriting uh, Procession of the Dead and another book, I was working in a, a, a Monday to Friday, nine to five job. Mm-hmm. And I would do that job Monday to Friday. And every weekend for two years, I was writing. I was rewriting these two books. So basically for two years straight, I worked a seven day week. But Saturday and Sunday never felt like work to me because I was doing something that I loved, something that I just thought I had to do. And I think any writer you speak to, pretty much all of us will say, you know, we would do it without pay. You know, lots of us can't afford to make full-time livings doing this job. Mm-hmm. You know, we have to have other ways to pay the bills, to pay the mortgage, to pay the rent. But, um, yeah, it's not about the money. The money is lovely when it comes, if it does come. <laughs> but the money, I always saw the money as a bonus. Not as a teenager. You know, I was 14, 15, 16 you know, I was dreaming wild teenage dreams. I thought, yeah, I'm going to be a best-selling author. I'll make loads and loads of cash. I'll have a lovely big house. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, time I was 21, 22, 23. Yeah, you know, my goal was, if possible, to make minimum wage, which would allow me to afford to write full time. That was the one thing I wanted to do was to be able to write full time. And then I was very lucky. A little book called Circuit Free came along mm-hmm. a couple of years after Procession of the Dead, and um, that ended up returning me to the land of my teenage dreams, which was. Strange, but very enjoyable. <laughs> well, I it, I can imagine how uh, overwhelming that would have been. And I, I'm curious, as you were in that stage between your first published book and before Cirque du Freak blew up the way it did, um, and uh, Procession of the Dead, once you had that out, how many drafts of other stories that have kind of made it out were started at that point? A lot of stuff. I've actually started going back in the last few years. A certain freak, um, I, I, said, I said it was strange because I never anticipated having a career as a, a children's or YA author. I always loved children's books. Mm-hmm. Um, I did a year of children's literature at university. I always had it in the back of my mind that I was going to try to write a book for a younger audience one day. But everything else I've written to that point was for adults. Procession of Dead was for adults. New Pursuit was, was for adults. Yeah, I, was, I thought I was primarily... Uh, an adult's author. Mm-hmm. Um, but Procession didn't do very well. And the sequel sold even less copies. I think Procession sold about 2,000 when it first came out, which isn't bad for a first-time book. No. But the second one, it sold about 1,000 copies. Um, whereas Cirque Freak, even though it wasn't a bestseller straight away, it began getting traction very, very quickly. And mm-hmm. so I found myself moving into this alternate career as, as a YA author. So I've actually started to come back in recent years under a pseudonym of Darren Dash, we re- reworking some of those early novels that I was working on and releasing them um, as self-published novels for, for Amazon just because, you know, I want to get them out there. You know, I wrote them all these years ago. I believe in them. There are some I didn't believe in. There are some that are going to sit on the shelf, I think, probably always. <laughs> but there are some that I felt, yeah, these, these could be quite good. And, um, and so, I, so I've returned to those. So there, there was a lot of work. It was a really um, amazing, incredibly hectic time for me. I was averaging maybe five or six new novels a year at one wow. point. Yeah, that's I would amazing. Just, uh, 
the thing is, I had no money. I was living with my parents. I couldn't afford to go anywhere. You know, I couldn't afford to go out very much. So I was basically, I was drawing unemployment benefits. All I had to do was write. So I just sat there and I banged away at my keyboard. I kept going and going and going. Some of the stories worked, some didn't. I never minded when the story wasn't working because you'll always learn from your failures. It's one of the things I say to young writers, you know, don't be worried if the work you're producing isn't up to the standard of your role models. You know, because our work wasn't up to that standard when we were starting out. Everyone has to write bad stories. Everyone makes mistakes. You know, some, some of the worst books I've written have been the most beneficial to me because I've learned, okay, that's how it doesn't work. Mm-hmm. This is how it works. And you've got to do that. You've got to make your mistakes. I mean, it's a very simple analogy, but it, you know, it is like a child learning to walk. They're going to fall over, they're going to fall over, they're going to fall over. Without that, they're never going to learn to walk, pro- walk properly. You'll just be crawling the whole time. So I, I never minded when a book didn't work. I just move on straight away to the next book. But uh, yeah, it, it was a very, very productive time. I look back at it now and you know, I'm in my mid-40s now, which isn't especially old. Nope. But because I started so young, I've had you know, 30 years of um, writing behind me. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I just, I, I can't quite imagine doing that level of, of work these days. You know, I've, learnt, I've learnt a lot more. I'm hopefully able to write much better than I did back then. But that's when I was, my imagination was firing all cylinders when I was really, I was, and I was trying different things. I didn't, I didn't have an audience. Going back to what I said a little while ago about those early years being a, a wonderful time. Mm-hmm. When nobody is waiting for your work to come out, you can do anything. You can try anything. If you fail, it doesn't matter. No one's there to care. As an established author, if you try something very, very different, you risk disappointing your base of fans. Yeah. As an established author, you can do anything, and I think you should do anything. You know, I tried fantasy, I tried sci-fi, I tried horror, I tried thrillers, I tried weird magical sex books. I was afraid <laughs> to get a fan to see what, what would hit. Oh, Darren, of your uh, books that didn't work, um, is there a particular one that you find is your favorite that you wished had worked? Or, or more like that you learned the most from yeah. having made that failure of a, of a story, perhaps. I mean, one of the ones which I learned a huge amount from was, it's actually been published, um, it was, as I said, these days I publish out of books under a different name, mm-hmm. but we did publish a few under the name of Darren Shan uh, several years ago. And um, I did a, a, a trilogy called The City Trilogy, and the second book was called Hell's Horizon. And that was a book that failed a few times. I wrote the first draft and I was uh, I was going for a, a Raymond Chandler type story. And so I was trying to do this hard-boiled detective story with lots of sassy dialogue and sexy women and sneering detectives. Mm-hmm. And it was dreadful. Yeah, that wasn't my thing. Um, but I just felt there was something in there. I felt there was a kernel of a story that was worth returning to. And so I went back into the second draft. And I sent that to my agent and he said, no, no, this isn't working. And I did a third draft and I said that to him. He said, no, no, this isn't working. And I think it was the fourth or fifth draft. I finally managed to get it into what I think is, is, is one of my, my best stories. And it was, it, it, it taught me that if you believe in a story, you have to persevere. And your aim as a writer has to be to try to help other people to see what you can sense in a story. You know, I've, I've written stories which I've, just, I've been really, really excited about, and then I've sent them to my agent and the publisher, and they haven't been so excited. And usually what I find is if I go back and rework those stories and rewrite them, 
I can find a way to get that excitement across, to make them see what I can see. It's the hardest thing about being a writer, I think, is getting what's inside your head into a shape that will take life inside your reader's head. It's very, I think every writer sees their stories perfectly before they start writing. But in that process, it's how do you convey the image, the vision inside your head in such a way that other people can relate to it. You know, a painter, they can just paint what, what they see, I think. Mm-hmm. You know, a painter see an image inside his head, he can paint it. As a writer, you have to use words to interpret what you see inside your head. And I think words are a far more difficult tool than a paintbrush when it comes to connecting with other people because everyone interprets words differently. Um, so, yeah, I, one of the things I learned the most was with Hell's Horizon was going through those three or four, and they were completely different drafts. So, like I said, the first one was like a Chandra-esque thing. The second one, it still had those Chandra elements, but I began to put other things in there. The third draft, I began adding, up, adding other things. And it was the first time that I really began to understand what people mean when they talk about your finding your voice. It's something you often read about or hear writers talking about of finding your voice. Mm-hmm. And that's when you stop trying to copy other people and you find your own voice coming through. There's always a degree of copy involved in writing. Writing is always about regurgitation. Every writer starts out as a reader. We all love reading. You know, if you don't enjoy reading books, you're going to hate writing them. Mm-hmm. And all products of the stories we've been exposed to and that we've sought out um, in, our, in our younger years. But you, you get to a point, I think everyone when they start out, you, know, you do tend to mimic what, what your favourite writers say. So, you know, I loved Clive Barker. I loved Stephen King. I loved a writer called Jonathan Carroll. And yeah, I think if you go back to my early works, you would find strong trace of those in, in all of those early drafts. But then with books like Hell's Rise, I began to realise, you know, as much as I love these writers, you know, they're not telling the sort of stories that I necessarily want to be telling. I want to move in a different direction. I want to use their works as a springboard, but then find a way of telling a Darren Shan story. And Hell's Horizon was one of the times when I really actually experienced that and, and understood it. A lot of writing is subconscious. You learn a lot of things without ever realising you're learning them. I always say to young writers, you know, the most important thing about writing is write. The more you write, the more you learn and the better you get. You won't always know that you're learning. With Hell's Horizon, that was one time when I did know I was on a, a steep learning curve here. And it sounds like with especially that book, your editor was a really big part of helping you get through that process. And i um, curious, in the beginning, did you work with an editor a lot or did you do a lot of your own editing? Well, I'll always, these days, I'll always edit a book at least three or four times before I send it to my agent. Mm-hmm. Um, because, you know, I like to get it to a good shape before it goes out there. I actually love the editing process. You know, I've spoken to other writers and they absolutely hate it. For me, it's the most enjoyable part of the process. You start, I start to get sick of it by the time of the 7th or 8th edit. Um, that's when I know it's ready to send out into the world. But, um, yeah, for me, the hardest bit is doing the first draft and the editing is playtime. But, yeah, I was very, very lucky. My agent worked very hard for me on the editing process. When, when I went to my agent, I was 23 years of age when he took me on and he really saw me as a student and he has, he had other people work with him and, you know, he took the time and spent the money to get them to read through my work, to get the feedback on it, to feed that back to me. And he let me go through different, different drafts and try different things. Uh, that's quite unusual, you know, because agents had to make money as well. Mm-hmm. And, you know, usually an agent, if it's not working very quickly, 
they'll say, thanks very much, um, best of luck, and, and just have the, the connection. Um, my agent, Chris, he stayed with me. And you know, when I write something that wasn't working, he'd say, you know, go back and do it again. Or you know, if, if he'd re- rejected it outright, he'd give me reasons why. And yeah, it, it's been a collaborative process always from the beginning. I've always found that no matter how much work you do by yourself, and most writers will do 95 to 99% of the work themselves, you do need, I think, a good agent and then a good editor. You need a few different perspectives. Uh, a few people, a few people criticise your work, and and even now, a couple of years later, I've got I'm working on a new series at the moment, and I sent the first book of it into Chris earlier this year. And I think I think if, if I was with a lot of agents, you know, they'd say, "Oh, Dan Shan, you're your best-selling author." You know, I'd send them something, they'd say, "Oh, yes, thank you very much." You know, Chris still sees it the way it is. He, you know, if he doesn't like it, he'll say, "Look, I don't like it. You need to fix it. You need to work on it." And I think that's important. I think no matter how successful you get, you've always you always need someone who's there who's going to tell you, look, this isn't working. Go back to the table and try again. Because sometimes stories don't work. And sometimes as a writer, you can't see that they're not working until someone else points it out to you. I don't always agree with what they say. It's not a case of taking everything that Chris says on board or everything that my editor says on board. But I will always pay attention to what they say. And I'll always think about it. And if they recommend I do something and I don't do it, it will be because I've got a good reason for not doing it. Mm-hmm. But I won't automatically reject their suggestions out of hands. I always find it's good when you get a bit of criticism from an editor that you don't agree with to go away and mull it over and give it a few days, sometimes even a few weeks or months, because generally speaking, most of the time they are right. And if, <laughs> if they're not, you can usually find a way to rework it. That, that, that will settle them. So Darren, when your book started to become more popular and you had to do public appearances, did you enjoy doing those or did they make you uneasy? I did actually enjoy them, um, which is unusual. It's a very different part of the writing uh, process. You, know, you, you write in solitude. You write by yourself. And I've always been a very um, insular person. Mm-hmm. You know, I, didn't, I, don't, I never liked going to meetings with publishers. You know, I wanted to meet, meet my agent. You know, it took years before I felt comfortable in his presence. You know, I'm not a very good communicator in day-to-day life. You know, I think a lot. I don't say very much. But when I, did, when, when I went to do my first uh, school event, I just immediately loved it. I loved getting in front of a group of kids, uh, reading out my stories, taking their questions. I just slipped into Darren Shan mode. Um, <laughs> Shan is my name. My real name is Darren O'Shaughnessy. And, um, but uh, yeah, I, I'm very lucky. I, I enjoyed events. And over the years, I've done lots and lots of events. You know, I've toured all around the world. Um, schools, libraries, public events, signings. I, I really enjoy meeting the fans. It's it's something every writer, every writer's different. Some writers don't like it. And if you don't like it, I don't think you should do it because, you know, fans will know if, if you're not comfortable in their presence. But yeah, I, I, I just immediately, I, I clicked. There was a, a bit of, I think I was a bit of a ham actor in a previous <laughs> life. And, and that comes through when I go out into the the public arena, as it were. When I write, I need a very when I write, I need a very, very quiet life. I live in the countryside. I work in my office. Yeah, I can go days and days without seeing anyone except my immediate family. And so it's quite nice, I find, to get, to get out on the road to meet hundreds of thousands of people over the course of a few weeks if I'm on tour. And yeah, no, I've really, really enjoyed it. It's a part of the the writing career that yeah, that, that I've loved. So now that your life has kind of changed from working just on the weekends to 
maybe you can put more time into it, I'm guessing. Um, how have your writing habits changed from when you first started writing to now? For, for a long time, they didn't change. Um, I, I had a job for a couple of years after university, and that's when I was writing the weekends. And when I gave it up, I started writing from Monday to Friday. And for a very, very many years, I treated it as a, a normal job. And I would put in my shift Monday to Friday. I would, I would set myself a goal of 3,000 words a day, which is about 10 A4 sheet papers. And that's what I, I write very quickly. And that's what I felt comfortable doing. And I would make myself do those 10 pages every single day. And I would even, in those days when I was first starting out, I think I was still on a typewriter. And um, you know, if I was midway through a sentence and I got to page 10, that's where I stopped. And the next morning I'd sit down and I'd finish that sentence and go through my 10 pages a day. I was very, very regimented. Uh, in later years, I've loosened up a bit more. Um, you know, I've, I've, produced a, I've produced a huge body of work. I've got loads of books that I've written which haven't been published, some of which I'm returning to now and, and freshening up. So yeah, I started, when I started touring, that obviously meant I had less time to write and you know, I spent a good bit of a year out on the road. So um, I began working more uh, sporadically, is mm -hmm. the word. So for instance, if, if I was out on a three-week book tour, I might come back and work, but write them for two weeks solid. You know, have, have no breaks, work a whole week, two weeks through, because I might be going out again on another tour. Um, but generally speaking, I try not to vary too far from that, that that routine that I established in my late in my late teens, early twenties. So I do tend to work Monday to Fridays. Um, I usually don't hit my three thousand word mark these days quite as regularly as I used to. I've got a three-year-old son, uh -huh. and then. Um, that's proved a little bit uh, disruptive, but it's disruptive in a good way. Yeah, <laughs> I can imagine. <laughs> I, I tend to take a little bit more time now on the first drafts and the editing process than I used to, maybe say, 10 years ago. Mm -hmm. um, I'm a little bit lazy, but then I, I think I've earned the right to be a bit lazy. I would say so. so. <laughs> I'm, I'm, still producing, yeah, I'm still producing a good amount and I'm still working away and I've hopefully got this first book for a new series out next year. I've hoped to also release another of my Darren Dash books next year. So, um, yeah, I've eased up a little bit, but still, you know, doing enough, but I don't feel too guilty. So, Darren, what was it like finding an artist for the covers of your books? Well, that was something that my um, publishers uh, have done over the years. Okay. I've published in lots of different countries. So some of the countries, I never have any input into that process. The publishers just go and they find an artist and the first time I see it is when the book is printed and sent out to me. Wow. <laughs> um, and, and that's the way with lots of writers. You know, especially if you're not an established author or a best-selling author, you know, publishers will just do what they want. Uh, I've been lucky that most of the publishers I've worked with in the UK and the USA, they have taken my ideas on board. And we have worked as a team. And they've allowed me to be involved in choosing the artists. And they send the rough sketches of the covers to me and get my feedback and we've tweaked it accordingly. So, yeah, it's always been a, a perk to the job. Nice. It's always been lovely to see these covers appear. So I, I have no artistic talent whatsoever when it comes to drawing. You know, I, I can't even draw a good smiley face. <laughs> so I always love it. You know, no matter what's produced, I always like seeing, seeing what they come up with. And, yeah, it's been interesting. Some of the covers frustrate me. I think you'll always talk to writers... And there'll, there'll always be things that the artists have done that they won't agree with. I can remember one of my American covers for um, a book called Vampire Mountain, which is part of my Cirque the Freak series. And in the book, I, there's a scene in the book where the character Darren 
gets to this big, huge mountain in the middle of nowhere where the vampires have their secret base. And he's expecting a castle on the outside. And he looks up and says, oh, where's the castle? And the vampire with him says, you don't have castles, don't be stupid. If we did, humans would see them and would be, would be discovered. And in the cup for the book, they put a big castle on the outside. <laughs> <laughs> but at the same time, I, I understand that. Yeah, they, a cover artist has to tell a story using just images to try mm-hmm. to grab and bring them in yeah um, they're not always the most faithful but even then they can still be you know, works of art in their own right mm-hmm. um, yeah it's always been it's always been a and and an amusing part of the process for me it's something i get involved in usually quite late mm-hmm. yeah it, it's like a nice a nice dessert after the main meal of doing the hard work on the book oh that's awesome it just kind of shows up as a treat um, so what's one experience that you never dreamed possible that you've had because of your writing? Oh, there have been so, so many. You know, I've got to visit countries all around the world. You know, I've been all across the States on tours, from East Coast to West. I've been to the Far East, uh, Japan, Thailand, Taiwan. Um, I've been to Australia. I, I've just, the, the, the travel has been incredible. That's been the most obvious Change the most obvious extra that's brought to my life. You know, when I wrote Cert the Freak, I was living with my parents. I'd never been outside of the UK and Ireland. Uh, I'd hardly ever been on a plane. I was, I had no money. I didn't have a bank account. And, you know, a few years later, I was, I was jetting all around the world, staying in lovely hotels. Uh, yeah, that, that's just been incredible. Um, well, one of the, probably the most surreal experience for me um, as I said, my books have been very, very popular in the Far East. Mm-hmm. And I was in Taiwan on a book tour. I've been there a few times. And I, I think on the first time I was out there, I was on a book tour and I was given some interviews and I was asked, you know, who, who are some of my favorite authors? And I mentioned Stephen King. So Stephen King has been my role model ever since my early teenage years. Um, I love his work. I love his productivity. I just, you know, I think he's an amazing author. And, um, my, what I didn't realise was his books hadn't been very popular in Taiwan. It was one of the very few markets that his books hadn't cracked. Hmm. And uh, the publisher who was with me, hearing that I really liked Stephen King's book, went and bought uh, The Dark Tower on the back of that and asked me to write a foreword to it. So yeah, this, you know, this, this was a, a writer whose work I'd grown up with, who's you know, an absolute genius in my eyes. Mm-hmm. And here I was giving him a little leg up. So that was just <laughs> a, absolutely surreal and... Just, just incredible. That's, That's amazing. amazing. <laughs> Jinx. So, 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 so I don't know how the book did over there, but if it's doing well and I ever run into him, I'll be saying he owes me. <laughs> <laughs> I would say so. <laughs> so, Darren, any words of advice for writers who've just finished their first book and aren't sure what their next move should be? I mean, there are two things I would say. First of all, don't be afraid to send it out there. Even if you know it's not as good as you would like it to be, there's nothing to lose from sending your work out. You know, buy a buy a book like Writers Night's Yearbook or Writers Market. Follow their advice. You know, heed heed what they say. Um, you know, when, that, you know, when they say don't submit more than a couple of chapters, send a covering letter, send return postage. Although it's probably emails addresses these days. Probably most things are done uh, electronically. But you know, follow their advice. You know, every writer has gone through the same things. I think when we start out, we all feel like we're discovering territory for the very, very first time. Mm-hmm. But we're all 
Edmund Hillary climbing Everest or Scott heading off for the the pole. But um, we're not. You know, thousands and thousands of people have been in the exact same shoes before us and learn from their experiences, learn from their failures, heed advice they have to offer. But, but get your work out there. Send out some samples, see what the feedback is like. Um, you should always be working on the rewriting process. I learned a huge amount when I rewrote, rewrote my first couple of books. You learn a lot doing the first draft, but rewriting is where you start to see mistakes. Whenever I finish the first draft, I've, what I like to do now is leave it alone for several months. I go away, I work on other material, and then I come back to it and do a rewrite. And I find that gap, I can see its flaws much more easily. I can see where it needs to be fixed, where it needs to be tweaked, how it can be improved. So don't be afraid to, to rewrite. Don't be afraid to work on it again and again and again. You know, virtually every writer rewrites. I think Mickey Spillane is the only writer I've heard of who would do a first draft and leave it at that. But um, you know, pretty much every other writer, you know, they they go for it. Whether you love it like, like I do or you absolutely hate it, editing and rewriting is a necessary evil. So get that done. And don't be afraid to move on to the next project. Even while you're trying to get that project out there, there's no reason why you can't start book two. You don't have to wait to sell a book in order to move on to the next one. You know, move ahead, keep moving, keep going. Uh, as I said earlier, when you start out, there are no expectations of you. Nobody knows who you are, nobody cares who you are. Use that to your advantage. Keep moving, keep writing. Produce as much as you can. You will learn something every time you write. So don't get to the end of a story and say, oh, that's it now, I'm not doing another bit of work until this sells and I get my first payments and I'm all set up. Keep going. Send the work out there by all means, but be working away behind the scenes the whole time. I think that's beautiful. Yeah. I could seriously listen to you talk for hours. I love hearing your story and just like getting these little tidbits about what you did as you were starting out so much. It really does. I mean, it seems like every author has this story to share where it's like, I'm living in my parents' house writing these stories because I care. And then it goes from there. And it really just us who haven't done anything yet with what we were writing it really helps to hear this and to really hear your story as you've grown as an author and as your audience has grown i think that's really incredible oh, thanks very much yeah because i think yeah we all start virtually all of us start at the same place we're all we're all dreaming the dream and so i think it's good to hear from people that it was hard in the beginning because so i think yeah when i was starting out i was thinking oh these authors were published they must have just fallen into it somehow magically but but you don't you put in the hard work and you gradually, you know, you chip your way in. Yeah, and I think um, that's something that people who are going to listen to this need to keep in mind is definitely, like, just looking at your work on paper is, oh, he wrote a book at 17, and then it was actually published five years later. Whoa, good job. Like, it just looks like, it, it looks like a breeze from the outside, but it yeah. was definitely <laughs> nice to hear about the blood, sweat, and tears that you put into it. Uh, thanks a lot. <laughs> Well, thank you so much for being on our show today, Darren. And where can our listeners find more about you and your work? Uh, the best place to go is www.darrenshan.com. Uh, there are links to my Facebook page and Twitter account. I post on both daily. And then if you want to check out my books for older readers, there's uh, another site called www.darren-books.com. So everybody check those out. If you need to have that written down somewhere, you can find it in our show notes. Thanks a lot, guys. All right, take care. Have a good one, Darren.
Bye. Bye. Thank you so much for listening. And thank you so much, Darren Shan, for coming on and speaking with us today. And since we ended up with a slightly shorter episode than normal, we wanted to take this opportunity to tell you about a little adventure we went on. We got to go to the Lidditz Storytelling Festival, which, what did you call it, Jeanette? Lilith's. For the longest time, I thought we were going to Lilith's. And then we got there, and I realized there's no L in that word of the town. And then I started hearing it, the Lidditz Storytelling Festival. You never really know what a town is until you go to the town and you ask someone, where am I? And then they pronounce it. You're like, oh, that's where I am. And this was in Lidditz, Pennsylvania. This is the Lidditz Storytelling Festival, which is a gathering of storytellers and people that enjoy listening to stories. And uh, if you're not familiar with traditional storytelling, it is folk tales, it's personal anecdotes, it has, it's a very uh, specific way of telling stories in an oral tradition. So we got to hear from some really incredibly talented storytellers of a very uh, traditional sense. And it was really inspiring to hear these stories from way, way long ago in human history that have been passed down from person to person. And, uh, oh my God, it was just magical. It was absolutely magical to hear those stories. And a little personal stories from the storytellers' lives themselves, not just historical things or things in their cultural history, but also little personal stories and some anecdotes, actually, <laughs> um, that were just really, some of them were just really powerful. I mean, most of them were very powerful, and a lot of it was very entertaining, and we definitely learned quite a bit uh, about these type of festivals that we've never gone to before. No, the closest I'd ever come to this kind of storytelling is, if you're familiar with the Moth podcast, that's like the modern version of what we just heard. Or if you're familiar with another one of Dan Foytek's, uh podcasts called Listen, which is all about traditional storytelling. So if you want a taste of what we just heard this weekend, you should go listen to Listen. So Dan Foytek, who created the Ninth Story podcast, hosts the Wicked Library podcast and co-created the Lyft podcast, invited us to come to this festival uh, to join him and watch and experience this uh, hosted us at a nice Airbnb for the weekend, which is really, really kind of him. And because of this, uh, we got to have a lot of cool experiences, including getting to see who, Jeanette? Lane Lloyd in the flesh, which was really cool. It's always weird to me when I get to hang out with podcast slash internet friends in real life. I'm like, oh my God, you're actually even cooler in real life. Anyway, Lane was awesome. <laughs> Dan was awesome. I'm just making bizarre noises. Um, a little behind the scenes microphone behind the microphone uh, for you. I spent all of today making my Halloween costume mm -hmm. because that's like soon. <laughs> and I didn't have anything other than things that I had worn last year, which was boring so i made a whole new steampunk thing that i'm very excited about nice well back on track totally. mr mr lane lloyd who's a cool guy who is a cool guy he's also the podcaster who created sable and has created a brand new show which is called impromptu fiction with lane and friends which i will be submitting to that show because that sounds like a lot of fun it was it was an amazing weekend and if nothing else it really got me in even 
more of the mood for NaNoWriMo. I'm like, these stories are amazing. I can't wait to start writing, talking to Gail last week and talking to Darren Shan this week and hearing these stories at the Storytelling Festival. I'm just like, yes, I am so ready to be done with Inktober and on to NaNoWriMo as my next challenge. And there were some really fantastic uh, storytellers at mm-hmm. this festival. And what we learned uh, is that instead of pointing or just clapping, you kind of have an open hand uh, that you point towards the person who shared that story and you say thank you, uh, which is a really nice, kind way to thank somebody for sharing a piece of them with you. Mm-hmm. And we had some really fantastic storytellers that we would love to have on our show. So we're going to actually try really hard to get some of these amazing storytellers on our show. Janet, can you list off some of the fantastic folks that performed for us this weekend? Absolutely. So there was Charlotte Blake Alston, and she's from Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, and she told a lot of traditional African, like as in from the continent of Africa, African stories like Anansi and Rabbit Tales and just so many beautiful stories. She in particular is really, really great at the call and response style of storytelling, which is where you immediately engage your audience with Eh, you, you, you like sing something and then they sing something back. I can't even remember the song. Forgive me. I'm not terribly great at memorizing things, but it was really cool to sit in an audience full of people who were just 100% engaged in the story, calling out, calling back. And it just it's so uh, delightful. It's so different from regular theater because regular theater, you sit there and you laugh if you're enjoying it, but mostly you're just you're sitting there engaged and that's the whole goal is to be quietly engaged but with this storytelling they want you to call out they want you to respond they want to hear your laughter that's a huge part of this experience is the audience's reaction it was also a part of uh, i believe traditional african storytelling a part of it is the call and response absolutely uh, which was really interesting to to see and hear about it's actually a theme in a lot of the traditional storytelling where the most of the traditional storytelling, like the older storytelling, even the newer ones, it's about engaging with the audience. So there there were things from First Nation stories, mm-hmm. African stories, Afro-Lashian stories, which yeah. we'll talk about in a minute, where the call and response was something that you saw in a lot of them. Well, actually, most of the, I think most of the storytellers had actually kind of planned in advance to have uh, similar themes. Uh, because it seemed like a lot of the themes connected, like the animal story themes, uh, family themes, certain themes that uh, kind of connected the entirety of the performance from that particular concert together. They may have planned a little um, or a lot. I'm not sure. But there was definitely some response to the stories that were happening that happened live as each storyteller would come up. For example, there was one night where the first storyteller tells you a story about a really bad snake. You don't want to mess with snakes. They're bad news. And they're bad news. And that's what the moral of the story is. Snakes are awful. And then in consecutive stories, you have other ones who are like, now this snake, I don't, this snakes are nice. They're, they're, they're really nice. They eat mice. Like you want them around. But I don't know about those other snakes. Maybe you just met the wrong snake. So they're like poking fun at each other's stories throughout the evening. And that happened frequently. There was a whole sub theme of uh, tooth fairies for a while there. So it's cool to see whether they planned, whatever they planned, 
that it can kind of flow in and out of each story that's told because they'll take something from someone else's story and weave it into what they're telling. You know, and some of the stories were beautiful, some were poignant, mm-hmm. some were personal, uh, some were funny, like really, really funny. Oh my gosh. Bill Harley was a storyteller from Seekonk, Seekonk, Massachusetts is the, the part I can pronounce. Um, but his stories just had me laughing so hard I nearly fell out of my seat because there he just his way of describing childhood in particular oh my gosh literal busting guts well maybe not literal but I felt like I almost literally bust a gut and his story about um having to put together the pirate ship <laughs> from the dread pirate roberts for his young son the dread pirate Roberts, alex <laughs> and 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 we've all i mean those of us who are parents we're not parents but those who are parents uh know what it's like to have to prepare for christmas eve uh until like five in the morning and then have to get up an hour later <laughs> yeah <laughs> and yeah his description of that was it was kind of like that uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger movie, Jingle All the Way, kind of yep. had a feeling of that, uh, but really just really fun. And uh, we got to go to one workshop just because it was our first time there. We were totally exhausted. All of us were exhausted because we we're all driving like four or five hours to get mm-hmm. there. And then, you know, going wanting to spend time with each other, so not wanting to go to sleep. So we yeah. all <laughs> ended up going to sleep late every night and then trying to go do this conference or this this festival and so we got to all the concerts, but we only got to one of the actual um, workshops, which is for Lynn Ford, uh, which was... That was sweetening storytelling, how to sweeten your storytelling. But mostly it just turned into, you have this opportunity to talk to me. Let's talk about what you want to get out of this this little workshop. It was mm-hmm. only 45 minutes. But Lynn is an amazing teacher. Oh my gosh. She just, in the, at the beginning of it, she, you sit down, you learn something about her nationality and her traditions, and then you're learning about everyone in the room around you because she asks, what do you guys want to learn? Um, and then it just, it was really a, just a beautiful, genuine experience. And then there was Andy Offert Irwin. World-class whistler. He's a world-class whistler, uh, mostly musical uh, tales he'd play a song and then tell a story mm-hmm. and uh really just really fun great energy fun to listen to had some really fantastic stories some pointed stories some kind of borderline racy stories <laughs> like his use of language or or uh, imagery to kind of poke fun of the way um certain towns were you know extraordinarily had some like a past of extraordinary racism and how he would uh, he would touch upon that as a, as a white man from that area who probably doesn't have a hateful bone in his body is addressing that stuff uh, in a very kind of, I don't know what you say, like playful a playful way, like a playful way, you know, talking about how um, the the cemeteries, how the cemeteries for the African-Americans of that area were in these like dark and shady areas as far as like trees, lots of trees and stuff growing. They weren't <laughs> over. They weren't <laughs> well kept. He he led into that in a really just like, oh, did he just say that kind of way? Like, and then we got to the dark part of the cemetery and the whole audience goes, no, he didn't just say that. Yeah, but awkward giggles. And then he said, no, actually, there were trees shading over this part. And it was also because it wasn't well maintained like you were just saying. So he did. He would bring up these more difficult conversations in a in a playful way. 
which I thought was really interesting. And you can tell that all the other storytellers didn't take offense because they know Andy and they understand where it's coming from. And we, we all understood that after listening to him continuing to speak. Because the story had nothing to do with that, but it just was it's a little anecdote that just kind of throw in there to address humanity, address the way things are today and have been, mm-hmm. and uh, to talk about these things. Because I think if you don't talk about these things, they remain buried, and then we never actually heal. Like with another storyteller was Dovey Thompson. She was originally from Texas, and when she was growing up out there, it was... Uh, First Nation people in the 50s in Texas, which I didn't really know. I don't know my history enough, but that was the time when all of the First Nation tribes, all of the children were sent to public schools and their entire culture was demolished because they weren't allowed to speak their language. They, They weren't allowed to practice anything. They weren't allowed to have their own names. She's in a class for the first time. They won't recognize the fact that she's her name is Dovey. They wouldn't call her Dovey. So that little chunk of history and and hardship was mm-hmm. in there and wrapped into these beautiful, wonderful, playful stories. But I mean, I you know, there's things that I didn't know that I learned at this festival. Um, the story was in this in her culture, you never name a child after someone who's living because it's bad luck to the person. To both of them. One of them's going to die is the is the thing. But Dovey's grandmother wanted in her lifetime to see a child with her name. So Dovey was named Dovey. But because of that superstition, they never called her Dovey until the grandmother passed away. They'd call her Bunny because she was as rascally as a rabbit. And then that's why she tells all of these rabbit tales be- is because she was so connected to the rabbit in the folklore. And let's talk a little bit about our haul. We bought a whole bunch of stuff after listening to these amazing stories. And so what did we get? Oh my gosh, we went on a buying binge, but I'm still very happy with it. So we bought, um, since a lot of these stories are oral tradition, we bought a lot of CDs actually. Um, so from Lynn Ford, who is, oh, I hinted at this. I didn't actually explain it. Lynn Ford is the Afrolashian storyteller, and that is basically in the Appalachian Mountains. There is a whole bunch of different cultures that all mush together, and she is one of the descendants of all of that culture. So, Afrolashian Tales, and the CD we picked up was Rabbit Tales 2, Family, Foes, and Friends. More Home Fried Tales by Lynn Ford. And one of the other CDs we bought was Voices of the Animal People, Stories of the First Nations, told by Dovey Thomason. And we've listened to a little bit of this on the way back. Uh, not all of it, but we got, to listen to, we got to listen to a lot of these tales in person. And we got all these signed, which is really fantastic. Yeah. And we're going to have photos of all these things that we bought on the uh, Ninth Story Podcast Facebook page. So check us out over there if you want to see some images of this. Another one we picked up was Andy's Wild Amphibian Show, which has a story that had me cracking up in real life when I got to see it was I have a loose tooth. Oh my God. It's so funny, but that's all I have to say. I'm really glad that I have that on CD so I can listen to that one again because it was so funny. (laughs) And a lot of the storytellers uh, do multiple voices as well. Mm -hmm. And so that was really, really entertaining. Uh, Another CD we got was uh, first bird call by Bill Harley. 
And uh, we're excited to look into all these. The art's really cool. I'm really excited that they signed all these because it was an experience. It was it something really was. that I don't think any of us will, either of us will ever forget. And we're definitely now hooked and want to go to all of these type of festivals, these storytelling festivals, because they really, you know, touch you in a very personal way. They, they make you think, they make you feel, and that's really important. The last one that we picked up was from Charlotte Blake Alston, and that is Pine Trees and Frogs Legs, which I don't think we heard any of these stories while we were there, which is pretty cool. So I'm excited to hear these stories. She, um, actually, a lot of these storytellers, you mentioned this too, have a really amazing way of doing voices when they're performing these different characters. But holy cow, listen to a Dovey Thomason story. Um, she does so many incredibly different voices. You would never suspect that it was all coming from one person. Just do yourself a favor. Go look her up. The book we got from this festival was Hot Wind, Boiling Rain, Scary Stories for Strong Hearts by Lynn Ford. And I don't know. I just I love that woman. She's just so sweet. Mm -hmm. um, she's just really warm hearted, a great teacher. And the fact that she's writing scary stories is exciting for me because I just I love these like I just love scary stories. Uh -huh. I love young adult fiction. I don't know if this is young adult fiction or adult fiction. We will find out and let you know. We'll find out. We just kind of were like, we need this. Also, apparently Lynn is uh, known for her ghost storytelling. So she's been invited to multiple uh, festivals like this literally just to tell ghost stories. So I'm excited to read some of those stories. Uh, the last thing of the haul that we are talking you through is we picked up Charlie Bumpers versus The Squeaking Skull. That one's by Bill Harley and illustrated by Adam Gustavson. That was a terrible pronunciation of Gustavson. Gustavson. Yeah, I'm going to go with that. On the back. I just, I really love this foaming mouthed bat that's on the back of this. It's so cute. I told everyone my idea for a Halloween costume. Dad nearly choked on a bite of meatloaf. Milk sprayed out of Matt's mouth. Mom looked horrified. Right then I knew I had a great idea. And now I want to know what it was. So I need to like read this book because he totally got me hooked in about four sentences. So good on you, Bill. We also got some really beautiful bookmarks from the festival. And uh, we're, we're definitely going to be going back next year. Uh, I, I mean, I want to go back next I year. I would love to go back. So next year, in case you guys want to come with us, uh, we're going to try and get there to the Lit It Storytelling Festival in 2018. Um, their dates for next year are September 28th through the 29th. And uh, believe it or not, this whole amazing thing happened in the most beautiful middle school auditorium I've ever been in in my life. So... That was an amazing experience. I, I look forward to repeating it in the future. And thank you so much to the Warwick Education Foundation for putting this on and, and fundraising to put these amazing events on. Not only for us, but they were actually having all the storytellers perform for all the local middle schools, elementary schools, and high schools in the area uh, before they came and did the festival. So that was really cool to have them not only share this with people that are going to the festival, but also to the students and the next generation of storytellers. So uh, in closing, I'd love to hear all of your thoughts. So to tie back into Darren Shan, I have two questions for you guys. One based on Darren Shan's interview slash conversation and one about traditional storytelling. So for the Darren Shan side of this, 
what is one just weird thing that you totally think is going to happen as soon as you publish your book? Okay, think about that one. And then the other thing is, have you ever experienced storytelling in that oral tradition style? Like, I've heard it through my family. I've heard it through, you know, the traditional way, which is just from people. But have you ever seen this live before? I'm, I'm very curious if any of you have seen it and what you thought of it. And if you want to recommend any festivals to us. Please do. We're addicted now. It's all downhill from here or uphill. I'm not sure. Maybe we're just like swimming. Well, if you go in any direction, you're going somewhere. You're going on a journey and you're going to learn something. <gasps> That's so beautiful. So guys, enjoy the journey. Don't sit still. That's the only thing that would go wrong. Although then something might come your way. Start swimming, my friends. That was a terrible ending, but I love you. Thanks for listening. Bye, guys. <laughs> Bye. <laughs> Hello. Welcome to Skype call testing service. After the beep, please record a message. Afterwards, your message will be played back to you. This is a bug in your testing service. You should really get an exterminator. It is crawling out of your eardrums now. This is a bug in your testing service. It is. You should really get an exterminator. That'd be good it idea. is crawling out of your ear. It's, ow. <laughs> if you are able to hear your own voice, then you have configured Skype correctly. Thanks. If you hear this message, but not your own voice, then something then you is have wrong an with your audio recording settings. <laughs> Please check your microphone and microphone settings or visit Skype.com for more earwigs. help. <laughs> Thank you for using the Skype call testing uh, service. That really Goodbye. That really make me cringe. Ooh. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.